Chapter thirty one of the Hidden Hand. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget. The Hidden Hand by E. D. E. N. Southworth. Chapter thirty one. The Orphan's Trial. We met ere yet the world had come to wither up the springs of youth, amid the holy joys of home, and in the first warm blush of youth, we parted as they never part, whose tears are doomed to be forgot. Oh, by what agony of heart! Forget me not. Forget me not. Anonymous. At nine o'clock the next morning, Traverse went to the library to keep his tryst with Colonel Lenore. Seated in the doctor's leather chair, with his head thrown back, his nose erect, and his white and jeweled hand caressing his mustached chin, the colonel awaited the young man's communication. With a slight bow, Traverse took a chair and drew it up to the table, seated himself, and, after a little hesitation, commenced and in a modest and self-respectful manner announced that he was charged with the last verbal instructions from the doctor to the executor of his will. Colonel Lenore left off caressing his chin for an instant, and, with a wave of his dainty hand, silently intimated that the young man should proceed. Travers then began and delivered the dying directions of the late doctor, to the effect that his daughter Clara Day should not be removed from the parental mansion, but that she should be suffered to remain there, retaining as a matronly companion her old friend, Mrs. Mara Rock. "'Um, um, very ingenious, upon my word,' commented the colonel, still caressing his chin. "'I have now delivered my whole message, sir, and have only to add that I hope, for Miss Day's sake, there will be no difficulty thrown in the way of the execution of her father's last wishes, which are also, sir, very decidedly her own,' said Travers. "'Um, doubtless they are, and also yours and your worthy mother's.' Sir, Miss Day's will in this matter is certainly mine. Apart from the consideration of her pleasure, my wishes need not be consulted. As soon as I have seen Miss Day made comfortable, I leave for the far west, said Travers, with much dignity. Um, and leave Mamma here to guard the golden prize until your return, eh? sneered the colonel. Sir, I do not wish to understand you, said Travers, with a flushed brow. Possibly not, my excellent young friend, said the colonel, ironically. Then, rising from his chair and elevating his voice, he cried, "'But I, sir, understand you and your mother and your pretty scheme perfectly. Very pretty plan to entrap an heiress. But it shall not avail you, adventurers that you are. This afternoon, Souter, the confidential attorney of my late brother-in-law, will be here with the will, which shall be read in the presence of the assembled household. If these last verbal directions are also to be found duplicated in the will, very good, they shall be obeyed. If they not—' shall be discredited. During this speech Trevor stood with kindling eyes and blazing cheeks, scarcely able to master his indignation. Yet, to his credit be it spoken, he did rule his own spirit, and replied with dignity and calmness. Colonel Lenore, my testimony in regard to the last wishes of Dr. Day can, if necessary, be supported by other evidence. Though I do not believe that any man who did not himself act in habitual disregard of truth would wantonly question the veracity of another. "'Sir, this to me?' exclaimed Lenore, growing white with rage, and making a step toward the young man. "'Yes, Colonel Lenore, that to you. And this in addition. You have presumed to charge my mother, in connection with myself, with being an adventuress, with forming dishonorable schemes, and in so charging her, Colonel Lenore, you utter a falsehood. Sirrah, cried Colonel Lenore, striding toward Travers, and raising his hand over his head, with a fearful oath, retract your words, or— 
Travers calmly drew himself up, folded his arms, and replied coolly, "'I am no brawler, Colonel Lenor. The pistol and the bowie-knife are as strange to my hands as abusive epithets and profane language are to my lips. Nevertheless, instead of retracting my words, I repeat and reiterate them. If you charge my mother with conspiracy, you utter a falsehood. As her son, I am in duty bound to say as much.' "'Villain!' gasped Lenore, shaking his fist and choking with rage. "'Villain! You shall repent this in every vein of your body.' Then, seizing his hat, he strode from the room. "'Boaster!' said Travers to himself, as he also left the library by another door. Clara was waiting for him in the little parlour below. "'Well, well, dear Travers,' she said as he entered, "'you have had the explanation with my guardian, and—' He makes no objection to carrying out the last directions of my father, and our own wishes. He is willing to leave me here? My dear girl, Colonel Lenore defers all decision until the reading of the will, which is to take place this afternoon, said Travers, unwilling to add to her distress by recounting the disgraceful scene that had just taken place in the library. Oh, these delays, these delays! Heaven give me patience! Yet I do not know why I should be so uneasy. It is only a form— of course he will regard my father's wishes. I do not see well how he can avoid doing so, especially as Dr. Williams is another witness to them, and I shall request the doctor's attendance here this afternoon. Dear Clara, keep up your spirits. A few hours now, and all will be well, said Travers, as he drew on his gloves and took his hat to go on his morning rounds of calls. An early dinner was ordered, for the purpose of giving ample time in the afternoon for the reading of the will. Owing to the kind forbearance of each member of this little family, their meeting with their guest at the table was not so awkward as it might have been rendered. Mrs. Rock had concealed the insults that had been offered her. Travers had said nothing of the affronts put upon him, so that each, having only their private injuries to resent, felt free in forbearing. Nothing but this sort of prudence on the part of the individuals rendered their meeting around one board possible. While they were still at the table, the attorney, Mr. Souter, with Dr. Williams and Dawson, arrived, and was shown into the library. And very soon after the dessert was put upon the table, the family left it, and, accompanied by Colonel Lenore, adjourned to the library. After the usual salutations, they arranged themselves along each side of an extension table, at the head of which the attorney placed himself. In the midst of a profound silence, the will was opened and read. It was dated three years before— the bulk of his estate, after the paying a few legacies, was left to his esteemed brother-in-law, Gabriel Lenore, in trust for his only daughter, Clara Day, until the latter should attain the age of twenty-one, at which period she was to come into possession of the property. Then followed the distribution of the legacies. Among the rest the sum of a thousand dollars was left to his young friend Travers Rock, and another thousand to his esteemed neighbor Mara Rock. Gabriel Lenore was appointed sole executor of the will, trustee of the property, and guardian of the heiress. At the conclusion of the reading, Mr. Souter folded the document and laid it upon the table. Colonel Lenore arose and said, "'The will of the late Dr. Day has been read in your presence. I presume you all heard it, and that there can be no mistake as to its purport. All that remains now is to act upon it.' I shall claim the usual privilege of twelve months before administering upon the estate or paying the legacies. In the meantime, I shall assume the charge of my ward's person, and convey her to my own residence, known as the Hidden House. Mrs. Rock, he said, turning toward the latter, your presence and that of your young charge is no longer required here. Be so good as to prepare Miss Day's traveling trunks, as we set out from this place to-morrow morning.' 
Mrs. Rock started, looking wistfully in the face of the speaker, and seeing that he was in determined earnest, turned her appealing glances toward Traverse and Dr. Williams. As for Clara, her face, previously blanched with grief, was now flushed with indignation. In her sudden distress and perplexity, she knew not at once what to do, whether to utter a protest or continue silent, whether to leave the room or remain. Her embarrassment was perceived by Traverse, who, stooping, whispered to her, "'Be calm, love. All shall be well. Dr. Williams is about to speak.' And at that moment, indeed, Dr. Williams arose and said, "'I have Colonel Lenore to endorse a dying message from Dr. Day, entrusted to my young friend here, to be delivered to you, to the effect that it was his last desire and request that his daughter, Miss Clara Day, should be permitted to reside during the term of her minority in this her patrimonial home, under the care of her present matronly friend, Mrs. Mara Rock.' Dr. Rock and myself are here to bear testimony to these, the last wishes of the departed, which wishes, I believe, also express the desires of the heiress. Oh, yes, yes, said Clara earnestly, I do very much desire to remain in my own home, among my old familiar friends. My dear father only consulted my comfort and happiness when he left these instructions. There can be, therefore, no reason why Miss Day should be disturbed in her present home, said Travers. Colonel Lenore smiled grimly, saying, "'I am sorry, Dr. Williams, to differ with you, or to distress Miss Day. But if, as she says, her lamented father consulted her pleasure in those last instructions, he certainly consulted nothing else, not the proprieties of conventionalism, the opinion of the world, nor the future welfare of his daughter. Therefore, as a man of Dr. Day's high position and character, in his sane moments never could have made such a singular arrangement.' I am forced to the conclusion that he could not, at the time of giving those instructions, have been in his right mind. Consequently, I cannot venture to act upon any verbal instructions, however well attested, but shall be guided in every respect by the will, executed while yet the testator was in sound body and mind. Dr. Rock and myself are both physicians competent to certify that, at the time of leaving these directions, our respected friend was perfectly sound in mind at least, said Dr. Williams. That, sir, I repeat, I contest, and acting upon the authority of the will, I shall proceed to take charge of my ward, as well as of her estate, and as I think this house, under all the circumstances, a very improper place for her to remain, I shall convey her without delay to my own home. Mrs. Rock, I believe I requested you to see the packing of Miss Day's trunks. Oh, heaven, shall this wrong be permitted? ejaculated Mara. "'Mrs. Rock, I will not go unless absolutely forced to do so by a decree of the court. I shall get Dr. Williams to make an appeal for me to the orphan's court,' said Clara, by way of encouraging her friend. "'My dear Miss Day, that, I hope, will not be required. Colonel Lenore acts under a misapprehension of the circumstances. We must enter into more explanations with him. In the meantime, my dear young lady, it is better that you should obey him for the present, at least so far as retiring from the room,' said Dr. Williams." Clara immediately rose, and requesting Mrs. Rock to accompany her, withdrew from the library. Dr. Williams then said, I advised the retirement of the young lady, having a communication to make the hearing of which, in a mixed company, might have cost her an innocent blush. But first I would ask you, Colonel Lenore, what are those circumstances to which you allude, which render Miss Day's residence here, in her patrimonial mansion, with her old and faithful friends, so improper, inquired Dr. Williams, courteously. The growing intimacy, sir, between herself and a very objectionable party, this young man, Rock, 
replied Colonel Lenore. Ah, and is that all? It is enough, sir, said Colonel Lenore, loftily. Then suppose I should inform you, sir, that this young man, Dr. Rock, was brought up and educated at Dr. Day's cost, and under his own immediate eye. Then, sir, you would only inform me that an eccentric gentleman of fortune had done what eccentric gentlemen of fortune will sometimes do, educate a pauper. At this opprobrious epithet, Traverse, with a flushed face, started to his feet. "'Sit down, my boy, sit down. Leave me to deal with this man,' said Dr. Williams, forcing Traverse back into his seat. Then, turning to Colonel Lenore, he said, "'But suppose, sir, that such was the estimation in which Dr. Day held the moral and intellectual worth of his young protégé, that he actually gave him his daughter.' "'I cannot suppose an impossibility, Dr. Williams,' replied Colonel Lenore, haughtily. "'Then, sir, I have the pleasure of startling you a little by a prodigy that you denominate an impossibility. Clara Day and Traverse Rock were betrothed with full knowledge and cordial approbation of the young lady's father.' "'Impossible! Preposterous! I shall countenance no such ridiculous absurdity,' said Colonel Lenore, growing red in the face." Miss Day, Dr. Rock, Mrs. Rock, and myself are witnesses to that fact. The young lady and the young man are parties immediately concerned. They cannot be received as witnesses in their own case. Mrs. Rock is too much in their interest for her evidence to be taken. You, sir, I consider the dupe of these cunning conspirators, mother and son, replied Colonel Lenore, firmly. Tut, said Dr. Williams, almost out of patience. I do not depend upon the words of Miss Day and her friends, although I hold their veracity to be above question. I had Dr. Day's dying words to the same effect, and he mentioned the existing betrothal as the very reason why Clara should remain here in the care of her future mother-in-law. Then, sir, that the doctor should have spoken and acted thus is only another and a stronger reason for believing him to have been deranged in his last moments. You need give yourself no farther trouble. I shall act upon the authority of this instrument which I hold in my hand, replied Colonel Lenore, haughtily. Then, as the depository of the dying man's last wishes, and as the next friend of his uninjured daughter, I shall make an appeal to the orphan's court, said Dr. Williams, coldly. You can do as you please about that, but in the meantime, acting upon the authority of the will, I shall to-morrow morning set out with my ward for my own home." "'There may be time to arrest that journey,' said Dr. Williams, arising, and taking his hat to go. In the passage he met Mrs. Rock. "'Dear Dr. Williams,' said Mrs. Rock earnestly, "'pray come up to poor Clara's room and speak to her, if you can possibly say anything to comfort her. She is weeping herself into a fit of illness at the bare thought of being, so soon after her dreadful bereavement, torn away from her home and friends. "'Tut, tut, no use in weeping. All will yet be right.' "'You have persuaded that man to permit her to remain here, then?' said Mara gladly. "'Persuaded him? No, nor even undertaken to do so. I never saw him before to-day. Yet I would venture to say, from what I have now seen of him, that he was never persuaded by any agent, except his own passions and interest, to any act whatever. No, I have endeavoured to show him that we have law as well as justice on our side.' and even now I am afraid I shall have to take the case before the orphan's court before I can convince him. He purposes removing Clara to-morrow morning. I will endeavour to see the judge of the orphan's court to-night, take out a habeas corpus, ordering Lenore to bring his ward into court, and serve it on him as he passes through Staunton on his way home. But is there no way of preventing him from taking Clara away from the house to-morrow morning? No good way. No, ma'am. 
It is best that all things should be done decently and in order. I advise you, as I shall also advise my young friends, Traverse and Clara, not to injure their own cause by unwise impatience or opposition. We should go before the orphan's court with the very best aspect. Come, then, and talk to Clara. She has the most painful antipathy to the man who claims the custody of her person, as well as the most distressing reluctance to leave her dear home and friends. And all this, in addition to her recent heavy affliction, almost overwhelms the poor child, said Mrs. Rock, weeping. I will go at once, and do what I can to soothe her, said Dr. Williams, following Mrs. Rock, who led him up to Clara's room. They found her prostrate upon her bed, crushed with grief. "'Come, come, my dear girl, this is too bad. It is not like the usual noble fortitude of our Clara,' said the old man, kindly taking her hand. "'Oh, doctor, forgive, forgive me, but my courage must have been very small, for I fear it is all gone. But then, indeed, everything comes on me at once. My dear, dear father's death, then the approaching departure and expected long absence of Travers. All that was grievous enough to bear.' and now to be torn away from the home of my childhood, and from the friend that has always been a mother to me, and by a man from whom every true good instinct of my nature teaches me to shrink, I, who have always had full liberty in the house of my dear father, to be forced away against my will by this man, as if I were his slave, exclaimed Clara, bursting into fresh tears of indignation and grief. Clara, my dear, dear girl, this impatience and rebellion is so unlike your gentle nature that I can scarcely recognize you for the mild and dignified daughter of my old friend. Clara, if the saints in heaven could grieve at anything, I should think your dear father would be grieved to see you thus, said the old man in gentle rebuke, that immediately took effect upon the meek and conscientious maiden. Oh, I feel, I feel that I am doing very wrong, but I cannot help it. I scarcely know myself in this agony of mingled grief, indignation, and terror. Yes, terror, for every instinct of my nature teaches me to distrust and fear that man, in whom my father must have been greatly deceived, before he could have entrusted him with the guardianship of his only child. I think that quite likely, said the old man. Yet, my dear, even in respect to your dear father's memory, you must try to bear this trial patiently. Oh, yes, I know I must. Dear father, if you can look down and see me now, forgive your poor Clara her anger and her impatience. She will try to be worthy of the rearing you have given her, and to bear even this great trial with the spirit worthy of your daughter, said Clara, within her own heart. Then, speaking up, she said, You shall have no more reason to reprove me, Dr. Williams. That is my brave girl, that is my dear Clara Day. And now, when your guardian directs you to prepare yourself for your journey, obey him. Go with him without making any objection. I purpose to arrest your journey at Staunton, with a habeas corpus, that he dare not resist, and which shall compel him to bring you into the orphan's court. There our side shall be heard, and the decision will rest with the judge. And all will be well. Oh, say that, sir, to give me the courage to act with becoming docility, pleaded Clara. I have not a doubt in this world that it will be all right, for however Colonel Lenore may choose to disregard the last wishes of your father, as attested by myself and young Rock, I have not the least idea that the judge will pass them over. On the contrary, I feel persuaded that he will confirm them by sending you back here to your beloved home. Oh, may heaven grant it, said Clara, you do indeed give me new life. Yes, yes, be cheerful, my dear, trust in providence, and expect nothing short of the best. And now I dare not tarry longer with you, for I must see the judge at his house this night. Good-bye, my dear. 
"'Keep up a good heart,' said the old man cheerfully, pressing her hand and taking his leave. Mrs. Rock accompanied him to the hall door. "'My dear madam, keep up your spirits also for the sake of your young charge. Make her go to bed early. Tomorrow, when she thinks she is about to be torn from you forever, remind her in her ear that I shall meet the carriage at Staunton with a power that shall turn the horses' heads.' And so saying, the worthy old gentleman departed." As Mara Rock looked after him, she also saw with alarm that Colonel Lenore had mounted his horse and galloped off in the direction of Staunton, as if impelled by the most urgent haste. She returned to the bedside of Clara, and left her no more that night. As the Colonel did not return to supper, they, the family party, had their tea in Clara's room. Late at night Mrs. Rock heard Colonel Lenore come into the house and enter his chamber. Poor Clara slept no more that night. Anxiety, despite all of her efforts, kept her wide awake. Yet, though anxious and wakeful, yet by prayer and endeavor she had brought her mind into a patient and submissive move, so that when a servant knocked at her door in the morning, with a message from Colonel Lenore that she should be ready to set forth immediately after breakfast, she replied that she should obey him, and without delay she arose and commenced her toilet. All the family met for the last time around the board. The party was constrained. The meal was a gloomy one. On rising from the table, Colonel Lenore informed his ward that his travelling carriage was waiting, and that her baggage was already on, and requested her to put on her bonnet and mantle, and take leave of her servants. Clara turned to obey. Travers went to her side and whispered, "'Take courage, dear love. My horse is saddled. I shall ride in attendance upon the carriage, whether that man likes it or not, nor lose sight of you for one moment, until we meet Williams with his habeas corpus.' "'Nor even then, dear Travers, nor even then. You will attend me to the court, and be ready to take me back to this dear, dear home,' murmured Clara in reply. "'Yes, yes, dear girl. There, be cheerful,' whispered the young man, as he pressed her hand and released it. Colonel Lenore had been a silent but frowning spectator of this little scene, and now that Clara was leaving the room, attended by Mrs. Rock, he called the latter back, saying— "'You will be so kind as to stop here a moment, Mrs. Rock, and you also, young man.' The mother and son paused to hear what he should have to say. "'I believe it is the custom here in discharging domestics to give a month's warning, or in lieu of that to pay a month's wages in advance. There, woman, is the money. You will oblige me by leaving the house to-day, together with your son and all your other trumpery, as the premises are put in charge of an agent.' who will be here this afternoon, clothed with authority to eject all loiterers and intruders. While the colonel spoke, Mara Rock gazed at him in a panic, from which she seemed unable to rouse herself, until Travers gravely took her hand, saying, "'My dear mother, let me conduct you from the presence of this man, who does not know how to behave himself toward woman. Leave me to talk with him. And do you, dear mother, go to Miss Day, who I know is waiting for you.' Mara Rock mechanically complied, and allowed Travers to lead her from the room. When he returned, he went up to Colonel Lenore, and standing before him, and looking him full and sternly in the face, said as sternly, "'Colonel Lenore, my mother will remain here and abide the decision of the orphan's court. Until that has been pronounced, she does not stir at your or any man's bidding.' "'Villain, out of my way!' sneered Lenore, endeavouring to pass him. Travers prevented him, saying, "'Sir, in consideration of your age, which should be venerable, 
your position, which should prove you honorable, and of this sacred house of mourning in which you stand, I have endeavored to meet all the insults you have offered me with forbearance. But, sir, I am here to defend my mother's rights and to protect her from insult, and I tell you plainly that you have affronted her for the very last time. One more word or look of insult leveled at Mara Rock, and neither your age, position, nor the sacred roof shall protect you from personal chastisement at the hands of her son." Lenore, who had listened in angry scorn, with many an ejaculation of contempt, not at the conclusion which so galled his pride, broke out furiously, with, "'Sir, you are a bully. If you were a gentleman, I would call you out.' "'And I should not come out if you did, sir. Dueling is unchristian, barbarous, and abominable in the sight of God and all good men. For the rest you may call me anything you please, but do not again insult my mother.' "'For if you do, I shall hold it a Christian duty to teach you better manners,' said Travers, coolly taking his hat and walking from the room. He mounted his horse, and stood ready to attend Clara to Staunton. Colonel Lenore ground his teeth in impotent rage, muttering, "'Take care, young man. I shall live to be revenged upon you yet for these affronts.' And his dastard heart burned with the fiercer malignity that he had not dared to meet the eagle eye or encounter the strong arm of the upright and stalwart young man." Gnashing his teeth with ill-suppressed fury, he strode into the hall, just as Mrs. Rock and Clara, in her travelling dress, descended the stairs. Clara threw her arms around Mrs. Rock's neck, and weeping, said, "'Good-bye, dear, best friend, good-bye. Heaven grant it may not be for long. Oh, pray for me, that I may be sent back to you. May the Lord have you in his holy keeping, my child. I shall pray until I hear from you,' said Mara, kissing and releasing her. Colonel Lenore then took her by the hand led her out, and put her into the carriage. Just before entering, Clara had turned to take a last look at her old home. All friends and servants noticed the sorrowful, anxious, almost despairing look of her pale face, which seemed to ask, Ah, shall I ever, ever return to you, dear old home, and dear familiar friends? In another instant she had disappeared within the carriage, which immediately rolled off. As the carriage was heavily laden, and the road was in a very bad condition, it was a full hour before they reached the town of Staunton. As the carriage drew up for a few moments before the door of the principal hotel, and Colonel Lenore was in the act of stepping out, a sheriff's officer, accompanied by Dr. Williams, approached, and served the colonel a writ of habeas corpus, commanding him to bring his ward, Clara Day, into court. Colonel Lenore laughed scornfully, saying, "'And do you imagine this will serve your purposes?' Ha, ha! The most that it can do will be to delay my journey for a few hours until the decision of the judge, which will only serve to confirm my authority beyond all future possibility of questioning. We will see to that, said Dr. Williams. Drive to the courthouse, ordered Colonel Lenore. And the carriage, attended by Traverse Rock, Dr. Williams, and the sheriff's officer, each on horseback, drove thither. And now, reader, I will not trouble you with a detailed account of this trial. Clara, clothed in deep mourning, and looking pale and terrified, was led into the courtroom on the arm of her guardian. She was followed closely by her friends, Traverse Rock and Dr. William, each of whom whispered encouraging words to the orphan. As the court had no pressing business on its hands, the case was immediately taken up. The will was read and attested by the attorney who had drawn it up, and the witnesses who had signed it. Then the evidence of Dr. Williams and Dr. Rock was taken concerning the last verbal instructions of the deceased. The case occupied about three hours, at the end of which the judge gave a decision in favor of Colonel Lenore. 
This judgment carried consternation to the heart of Clara and of all her friends. Clara herself sank fainting into the arms of her old friend, the venerable Dr. Williams. Traverse, in bitterness of spirit, approached and bent over her. Colonel Lenore spoke to the judge. I deeply thank your honor for the prompt hearing and equally prompt decision of this case, and I will beg your honor to order the sheriff and his officers to see your judgment carried into effect, as I foresee violent opposition, and wish to prevent trouble. Certainly. Mr. Sheriff, you will see that Colonel Lenore is put in possession of his ward, and protected in that right until he shall have placed her in security, said the judge. Clara, on hearing these words, lifted her voice from the old man's bosom, nerved her gentle heart, and in a clear, sweet, steady voice said, "'It is needless precaution, Your Honor. My friends are no lawbreakers, and since the court has given me into the custody of my guardian, I do not dispute its judgment. I yield myself up to Colonel Lenore.' "'You do well, young lady,' said the judge. "'I am pleased, Miss Day, to see that you understand and perform your duty.' "'Believe me, I shall do all that I can to make you happy,' said Colonel Lenore. Clara replied by a gentle nod, and then, with a slight blush mantling her pure cheeks, she advanced a step, and placed herself immediately in front of the judge, saying, "'But there is a word that I would speak to your honor.' "'Say on, young lady,' said the judge. And as she stood there in her deep mourning dress, with her fair hair unbound and floating softly around her pale, sweet face, every eye in that court was spellbound by her almost unearthly beauty. Before proceeding with what she was about to say, she turned upon Traverse a look that brought him immediately to her side. "'Your Honor,' she began, in a low, sweet, clear tone, "'I owe it to Dr. Rock here present, who has been sadly misrepresented to you, to say, what under less serious circumstances my girl's heart would shrink from avowing so publicly, that I am his betrothed wife, sacredly betrothed to him by almost the last act of my dear father's life. I hold this engagement to be so holy that no earthly tribunal can break or disturb it. And while I bend to your honor's decision, and yield myself to the custody of my legal guardian for the period of my minority, I here declare to all who may be interested that I hold my hand and my heart irrevocably pledged to Dr. Rock, and that, as his betrothed wife, I shall consider myself bound to correspond with him regularly, and to receive him as often as he shall seek my society, until my majority, when I and all that I possess will become his own. In these words I force myself to speak, Your Honor, both in justice to my dear lost father and his friend Traverse Rock, and also to myself, that hereafter no one may venture to accuse me of clandestine proceedings, or distort my actions into improprieties, or in any manner call in question the conduct of my father's daughter. And with another gentle bow, Clara retired to the side of her old friend. "'You are likely to have a troublesome charge in your ward,' said the sheriff, apart to the colonel, who shrugged his shoulders by way of reply. The heart of Traverse was torn by many conflicting passions, emotions, and impulses. There was indignation at the decision of the court, grief for the loss of Clara, and dread for her future. One instant he felt a temptation to denounce the guardian as a villain, and to charge the judge with being a corrupt politician, whose decisions were swayed by party interests.' The next moment he felt an impulse to catch Clara up in his arms, fight his way through the crowd, and carry her off. But all these wild emotions, passions, and impulses he succeeded in controlling. Too well he knew that to rage, do violence, or commit extravagance as he might, the law would take its course all the same. While his heart was torn in this manner, Colonel Lenore was urging the departure of his ward. 
and Clara came to her lover's side, and said, gravely and sweetly, "'The law, you see, has decided against us, dear Travers. Let us bend gracefully to a decree that we cannot annul. It cannot at least alter our sacred relations, nor can anything on earth shake our steadfast love in each other. Let us take comfort in that, and in the thought that the years will surely roll around at length, and bring the time that shall reunite us.' Oh, my angel girl, my angel girl, your patient heroism puts me to the blush, for my heart is crushed in my bosom, and my firmness quite gone, said Travers, in a broken voice. You will gain firmness, dear Travers. Patient, I patient? You should have heard me last night. I was so impatient that Dr. Williams had to lecture me. But it would be strange if one did not learn something by suffering. I have been trying all night and day to school my heart to submission— and I hope I have succeeded, Travers. Bless me, and bid me good-bye. The Lord forever bless and keep you, my own dear angel, Clara, burst from the lips of Travers. The Lord abundantly bless you. And you, said Clara. Good-bye, good-bye, good-bye. And thus they parted. Clara was hurried away and put into the carriage by her guardian. Ah, no one but the Lord knew how much it had cost that poor girl to maintain her fortitude during that trying scene. She had controlled herself for the sake of her friends. But now, when she found herself in the carriage, her long strained nerves gave way. She sank exhausted and prostrate into the corner of her seat, in the utter collapse of woe. But leaving the travellers to pursue their journey, we must go back to Travers. Almost broken-hearted, Travers returned to Willow Heights to convey the sad tidings of his disappointment to his mother's ear. Mara Rock was so overwhelmed with grief at the news that she was for several hours incapable of action. The arrival of the house-agent was the first event that recalled her to her senses. She aroused herself to action, and, assisted by Travers, set to work to pack up her own and his wardrobe and other personal effects. And the next morning Mara Rock was re-established in her cottage. And the next week, having equally divided their little capital, the mother and son parted, Travers, by her express desire, keeping to his original plan, set out for the far west. End of chapter 31